Welcome to the award-winning Doing Customer Experience Right podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, a professional global speaker and CX expert. This show is about action over theory, focusing on applying proven strategies to deepen customer relationships and increase loyalty as your competitive advantage. Besides achieving better human and business outcomes, each episode aims to elevate your professional and personal growth too. To continue learning, please subscribe to my newsletter at doingcxright.com. Today, I'm speaking with Greg McEwen, author and advocate for making it easier to do what matters most. We'll explore how to dismantle the efficiency blocking mindsets and the misconceptions that easy equates to lazy. We'll draw upon a case study from Amazon, emphasizing simplicity in customer experiences and confront the reality of validating this simplicity with actual customers. Greg reveals the pitfalls of assuming we understand others' needs without direct insights. Drawing from his own profound experiences that inspired Effortless, Greg challenges us to flip our approach, make what's essential easier and what's non-essential harder. We'll also discuss the 10X dilemma faced by leaders seeking exponential results and the necessity for mindset shifts to prevent burnout. I'm so glad you're here for this transformative conversation filled with promising strategies to work smarter and deliver customer excellence. Let's get started. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Uh, It's great to be with you. Thank you, Stacey. I'm so glad you're here. As I had mentioned earlier that I'm reading your book. I love your book. And we're going to dive into both of them. But before we do, can you please share who are you? What do you do professionally? Tell the audience. My name is Greg McEwen. Um, I'm an author. I'm a speaker, a podcaster. But really what I'm about is helping professionals to be able to discover new paradigms for how to be able to achieve far more fulfillment and achievement, but without burning out. Mm. Now, before we get into what that really means and dig deep, what is a fun fact, Greg, that people might not know about you? Uh, Well, inadvertently, um, at age 45, I... Uh, was was uh, started a doctoral program, uh, and uh, and so I'm doing that at the University of Cambridge. Uh, nobody, no, there was no real pressing external reason to do it at all. Uh, but it's been it's been a great joy to be able to, I mean, uh, uproot my family uh, and have this learning adventure. Uh, when maybe at a point in your career, you, you maybe think those kinds of adventures are done. Hmm. Speaking of adventures, this is a question I ask every guest, mm. and it's my favorite one, which is looking back, what you know today that you didn't know, what would you tell your younger 20-year-old self if you could talk to younger Greg now? I mean... My sort of go-to advice when people have asked that question to me before is 
look, it's all going to work out and so much better than you think. You know, it's that sort of a message uh, because that is true. And, and maybe it would have been useful for that self to know that. But as you ask it right now, live in this moment, I, I feel like what I want to say is something, is something like this. Like, you don't know it yet, but you, you're still caught up in an old paradigm that's, that's quite restrictive about what's, what's right, what's wrong, and how to sort of try to shape your life in a very constricted way. And there's a different paradigm ahead that's full of more goodness than that old one, but one that will help you you know, your marriage to thrive and your children to thrive. And it, it, it's, it could help you with more joy earlier as well. I think that's what I want to say. Mm. Does that lead you to your passion and education around making life business more effortless? Is there a connection there? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, when you, when I think about that question. I mean, there's lots of thoughts in my head about the answer. But in a sense, the story behind why I wrote Effortless is at the very end of the book. Like, at one time, it was at the very beginning, like the opening story, but it's so sacred, really. I, in the end, just thought, I'm putting it back at the back where only those that sort of earn it, in a sense, get there. And, and I don't know if it was the right choice, mm -hmm. but but that was sort of my thinking behind it because it all started in a personal setting where I was, we'd moved to a beautiful new area. Our children were thriving. They're out, um, you know, they're just, just, just happy playing with the dog, naming the chickens. Eve, one of my daughters especially, was thriving. Uh, she's very voluminous in her language. She's on the rock climbing team. She's climbing everything. She's naming, she's like a Dr. Doolittle, uh, an animal whisperer. And then she turned 14 and she just sort of started to, I don't know, like pretty age-appropriate behavior, we thought at the time. Like she'd take longer to do her chores. She was less communicative, maybe even a little socially awkward, I would say, not physically awkward, I would say, and one-word answers to questions. And we didn't think much of it. We said that we we're going to make a fuss about it. But then she failed a reflex test in a, in a norm, in a, just a um, run-of-the-mill physical therapy appointment she went to. And, and the therapist took my wife aside and was like, well, like, I don't want to worry you, but like, you know, you, you, know, you might want to, you might want to see a neurologist because, you know, that, that's a pretty serious symptom. And that, that was the beginning of a, the most unbelievably difficult, hard journey is unimaginable almost uh, because she just, there was a complete free fall in her human competence and capability it took an hour, like the whole right-hand side of her body stopped, slowed down, stopped working, a different pace of her left side, hand side of her body. She lost executive function. She could not really comprehend the future. And it went on and on and on and on to the point that she like, looked like she would fall into a coma and die. And, and it was really in the midst of that, this sort of growing discovery of something like, like that life is suffering for almost everybody almost all of the time. And that's true in professional settings too. We don't normally talk like that. You know, we keep a very sort of stiff upper lip about everything. But really, people are suffering most of the time, most people most of the time. 
And and it, that's like, that's the path. And you, you know, you, I suppose there's like a, there's probably a playing field, like the dark playground that people go to, to try and numb themselves to that reality, because that's one side. Mm. And there is this alternative path that is both, I don't know, like you would say maybe good, um, virtuous, one might call it, uh, but also effortless, relatively speaking. And we, we sort of stumbled upon it through what I would now describe as gra- radical gratitude. Uh, so, so everybody listening or watching to this, everybody has been taught that gratitude is being thankful for the good things in their life. Like, in fact, I, sus- I suspect that nobody has ever thought for a single moment that that isn't the definition of gratitude. Um, and it's not. Like, if you look in the dictionary, that isn't what it means. That's not its definition. It's just how we all think about it. But really what it is, is to be grateful for, it's, it's like to be grateful for everything. And as soon as we understood that, it shifted something and it dislocated something in, a, in an incredible way um, where we could suddenly not live in a state of suffering, but like in a state of meaning. Like maybe this is happening for Eve. Maybe this is happening for us. What if that tiny possibility is real? And it just opened a whole idea that there is an effortless path to life that that isn't the lazy path, right? Like it's the lazy path, this other dark playground maybe. It's not that, but it either is it this just endless making everything harder than it needs to be sort of Puritan type of way of thinking. And 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 really that that is an idea that to, um, could, could not put back in its, uh, in its, back in the bottle, you know, you can put it back in its original wrapping. Uh, mm. What, what mm. would happen if we make the most important essential relationships and, pe- and, and, and activities of our life the effortless ones and make the non-essential unimportant tasks the hard ones like what if you could shift it entirely so that doing the most important work and relationships is the thing that happens naturally whether it's in personal life as the story implies or in a professional setting which of course is the focus of this podcast yeah, in fact, I love your quote about the effortless way is, isn't the lazy way, it's the smart way. It may even be the only way. And yes. we get in our own way. <laughs> well, and I mean, yes, we do get in our own way, but I think a slightly different way of thinking about that is to say that there are mindsets that are in our own way. And and we there are... Many, many layers to the mindsets that we hold that are invisible to us. And so it's a little self-blamey, even though that's, of course, not what you meant by it, but to, to sort of say, oh, we get in our own way with this stuff. It's like, well, no, there are mindsets that we've breathed in that we don't see, and they get in our own way. And one of them, you've, you've used this quote from Effortless, but one one idea is simply this, like lazy, like easy is not lazy. Easy does not equal lazy. Like that is, that's quite an important thought. I don't mean for everybody. I mean, I do think that laziness is a challenge and a problem and there's so on, but like the people, nobody listening to this is lazy. Yeah, there's not one person listening to your podcast that I would, that, that, that would, that would be that. So, so lazy is not being willing to put in effort. And easy is 
something not taking a lot of effort. And of course, what you mm -hmm. want, what everybody listening to this wants is to be able to maximize their contribution, uh, maximize the, 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 the benefit that they give to others and to themselves in a way that is not only sustainable, but just like, just never burns them out, that allows them to be able to do this, not for a week or for a month, but for the whole of their lives so that they can fulfill the measure of their creation and do something that really matters and not just get beaten up along the way and not, not sort of get exhausted before they've even got to, uh, to, 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 you know, halfway through that potential. And, and if you can unlock this and go, well, of course, therefore, what matters is it's not whether I'm willing to put an effort. Yes, of course, everyone's willing to put an effort that's on this, that's listening to this. Now, how can we design your life in such a way that you can get a high return on effort? Not just a return on investment, but a return on effort so that you can be able to use that limited effort to be able to achieve extremely, you know, significant results in your own life or in your, you know, in, in your customer experience uh, for, for other people. Yeah. We make it so difficult in business, in companies, for our employees, our staffs, our customer service agents to deliver yeah. a great experience. 100%. Can you talk about what are some of the things and research that you've come across in your own experiences that people listening can make it easier to make their customers happier and make it simpler, not overcomplicate as we often do? <laughs> Yeah, and you you named the the, the 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 key word there, right? Like so so, what is it that we do that makes customer experiences harder than it need to be? And and what it is is that we add complexity to their life, and that could be complexity in terms of quoting policy to customers instead of just helping them, right? Well, you know that's not what we do here. You know that's not well. We haven't done that before. You know this is how it has to be. You have to go through these fifty hoops. Uh, to be able to get, you know, it's like this, this, you know, all, like all organizations, all human systems, in fact, tend towards complexity. And there's only two forces of which I'm aware that can do anything about that. One is failure, the suffocation that happens to human systems once they become too complex with unnecessary complexity. Uh, and, and that is actually the most common way you get rid of complexity. Um, is that kind of creative destruction, right? Like it just finally just takes out the the worst offenders. Um, and the only other alternative is is a is an individual, a person who suddenly wakes up, inverts this mindset, discovers that oh, there is an effortless way to do things, and that is the that is a high priority. Uh, and and so, like you know, let me give you a, a case study precisely on this, right? Because. Because even people listening to this who go, yes, that, my goodness, I really do need to simplify more. I need to get rid of more clutter for my customers in my own life. Will do it wrong, and, and they'll do it. I mean, I shouldn't <laughs> say it quite that bombastically, but but they will because because all of us approach complexity this way. We go, well, this isn't how we want it to be. There's way too many steps in this process. Like we finally decide we're going to simplify it, and we look at all of that complexity and we map it all out, and then we try to remove a step here, remove a little bit there. But but to, to, to a case study, so, so you go back to you go back to Amazon uh, when it's 100 employees, they're trying to get e-commerce off the ground. It's a time when e-commerce itself isn't trusted. So, so, you know, 
everyone gets to the checkout, they go, well, I do want that book and that's a pretty good price. So they're happy to, they want it. So it's not a value exchange problem. It's a customer experience problem because, because you're nervous about the checkout process. And then the checkout process is like 58 steps, right? You've got each page, put your name, first name, the next page, click, 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 click. And so all your anxiety increases over time and so the drop-off rate was enormous for Amazon. So it's a really limiting factor in being able to scale that business into anything you know, that works. And so they'd assigned a, one, one, of, one of their top engineers the job of simplifying that process. And he'd spent mm. two months working on the problem. And he was doing it just like all the rest of us do, right? Like, look at all the complexity. What can I, how can I simplify each step? Or how can I remove something a little bit here and there? And he has a meeting with just three employees. They're at the brewery in, in, in Seattle. And it's somewhere in that meeting, Jeff Bezos goes, no, look, I'm not talking about removing a few steps. I'm talking about one click. I don't want to remove a few clicks. I want one click. And he was coming at it the opposite way. And the master simplifiers, right? And, and Steve Jobs, I could give you a case study of, case study of him doing the same thing. And, but they come at it exactly opposite. They start from zero. And that's the big lesson of this case study mm. and this way of thinking. You don't start with all the complexity and try to reduce it. You go to zero. You go, forget all the processes we have. Forget all the policies we've ever created. How can I try to help this customer in a single step? Or is there a way I could help the customer achieve what they want and remove the steps entirely? Could I just construct something different that means they never even have to come to me? Uh, which, which is, uh, which you know, I have case studies for that too. Uh, in the work I've looked at for, for effortless, creating effortless experiences for customers and for the rest of us. Yeah, and when you're designing that simplicity, that effortless experience, something I've noticed in the companies I've worked at is that they'll create it, but they forget to validate it with a real customer to say, hey, what we designed and what we think is simple, is it? They don't even ask the real user. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is a, this is an interesting, I mean, there's sort of two ways to think about this. First of all, the problem you just described is 100% true, right? Like designing with a customer in mind is a good thing. <laughs> but there's a huge difference between um, perspective guessing and perspective getting. You know, so, so we, we, as humans, we over we overestimate our ability to guess what other people want, period. That's like a brain heuristic that we have. Uh, so it's why we get people the wrong gifts for Christmas. And it's why we've and we all know we've received the wrong gifts for Christmas. So it's evidence of this, this phenomenon. People took the time. They took the time. They took the money. They wrapped it. They gave it to us. They were waiting for the excitement. And then we had to pretend to be excited about it, even though we weren't, because that's not what we wanted. And it's a really clear, it's a very simple solution for that with Christmas presents. And, and that's you just ask people exactly what they want. So, so yes, you think that you're losing something of surprise, which of course that's true. Um, but you, you literally say, tell me exactly what you want. Like the product, if you want to send me the link, that's great too. But you get them exactly what they want. And they're so happy with that because they, there's no uh, expectation failure, which is, a, which is another seriously mm. stressful thing for customers, right? They, they, they thought they were getting one thing and they got something else. And so expectation failure is... Is, the, is, is like a, a low-key form of suffering. It's certainly a form of, of mental exertion 
and and this uh, and, and an unhappy customer experience. And, and so so yeah, like like the only thing I would say is yes, I think it's great to have customers experience your product. Like I think that's great and get the feedback. The only thing I want to say in addition, though, and I almost think it's primary, is use the product yourself. Like you have to use your product. If you're the customer service manager, you have to use customer service. You call that number. You experience that. That to me is is the best of the tests. It, when we get into the uh, we when we get into like corporate mindset, like like you, you know meeting room design, where we go, I want this would be really good for them. Oh, that would be so exciting. That would be they'd love this thing. It's completely different than you using the thing you've just designed for them. As soon as you use it, you go, oh, geez, that's a pain and that's not realistic and that's awful and I hated those steps. Why do we do this thing? So I think that idea of like, you be your customer and you design Mm. something that you love and is effortless for you to use and gets you the result without any, any strain or work beyond what is absolutely necessary. I think this is actually the, mm. the golden standard. Yes. Now, equally important, I think about when I've spent time in a call center and the screens that these call center agents have to go through, like, I don't know, all different screens while they're talking to the customer and they're trying to take notes and everything all at the same time. And it's, you wonder why they don't always perform at expectation. It's because the managers don't make it easy for them. So I see effortless and the practice of that incredibly important in the contact center space. What are your thoughts? Well, I've spent the last 15 years working with Silicon Valley companies and and really what you're talking about there is a it's a serious it's a serious problem. And it, it's it's much more it's much more of a problem than even is obvious. Because what you what you just said was the managers are making it harder for the employees than they need to. And there's plenty of truth to that statement. But with digital systems, it's way worse than that because you can talk to the manager. You can, you can escalate to a manager. You can escalate to... A, you could, In theory, you could escalate many times over, many times beyond what any customer call center will actually allow you to do and still not talk to a person that is actually digitally empowered to solve the problem. So this is, you know, like, okay, so automation of systems is is an effortless strategy. If you can take something and automate it completely, then of course you you have you've taken something that used to take conscious thought and work and mental exertion and effort. And now now it, you've removed all of that. Okay, fantastic. But it cuts two ways. If you bake into an automated process unnecessary complexity, things that don't work, things that don't serve the customer, things that make it hard for people to serve the customer, then you have done a travesty because nobody who's actually trying to help the customer can do anything about it. You know, like I I have had these conversations just like you have and other people listening and watching this. You're talking to the customer agent and they want to help you. 
They simply can't. You escalate it to the manager. They cannot do anything about it because they are looking at only the screens and systems that they have. And they're not the people designing it. And maybe the people designing it don't even work at the company anymore. And this is the problem of these of this growing yes. complexity that gets automated and built into the system. And so why you have to take this start with zero approach to processes in your technical systems, it's like, forget the systems we have. Just, just put them all aside for a second. Who's the customer? Who's the priority customer? What, are we, what is our primary value to them? How can we make that as effortless as possible for them to achieve? And then you build from there. Like this, this is a completely different way of thinking about it and totally necessary because, because the systems, man, they were built by people that don't even, you don't even know who they are. You don't even know what, what their thinking was. They, they might not, they, they left 10 years ago sometimes and you're still doing it. I, I, I know I'm riffing a little long here, but this is what happened in Expedia, right? So this is a case study I came across in the book, which I think is marvelous illustration of this, that they had... Uh, 20 million people per year, 20 million customers calling in to ask for their itinerary. Okay, so if you, if you, if you work out sort of the average call time, even if you say, okay, it's for five to seven minutes call time to achieve that, and you, you do the math on it, it's a $100 million annual cost. And so, of course, that's not great for the business, but it's also really, really frustrating for customers. That's 20 million people that are irritated. <laughs> They don't have the thing that, of course, they need. And, and so, and so, and what, one of the things I think that's interesting is you could be very, you, you could be very um, efficient. You could be very metric driven. Uh, you, you know, you could get really, really efficient. Hey, we're going to move from five minutes to four minutes to help these people. Like you could look at, and look at how many times we were polite to our customers. Like you could think about it in all the wrong ways by sort of trying to massage the current complexity rather than to just go, okay, how do we remove that step entirely? And they removed it by, by having it, one, already in automated into the email that they received. There it is, clearly signed. And of course, they also had it on their website too, which was a change. And they cut out a $100 million problem. They solved a $100 million problem for their, for their business. And of course, 20 million people per year had a more effortless experience in using their, in their system. That's what effortless design does for customer experience. Mm-hmm. There's a metric in the CX space. We obviously know there's net promoter score. A lot of us talk about level of effort score. How easy or difficult is it to do business? How easy or difficult is it to buy, etc.? What's your view on measuring the effort? Can you measure it in the way that gets you to be able to truly fix it? I think that's a really... I mean, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I mean, I think you have to frame a question something like this. You, 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 what you want to know is, how are we making just your, I mean, we use the word experience, but I want to say something like your intent, right? Like it's in brackets because the intent is different depending on the, the business. But how are we making your ability to achieve X harder than it needs to be? It's just how are we, what are we doing with that? Like, like that question is, is there's something there towards a net promoter's type score, t- type tool. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. Like a doctor's office asks that question, right? Yeah, well, stop telling us, stop getting us to fill out the same blasted paperwork every single time. Stop it. 
Stop giving me five different things to fill out in which every one I have to put my name and my name, my birth date. Like I, I won't do it. I just won't do it. I will go in there and I'm just like, I will just, I will, I will torture the person I'm talking to. Like, like low key, hopefully plumbingly, <laughs> but like, like I want to know exactly what is the absolute minimum information you must have for me to be able to go into this appointment. And, and some people, it's like really hard for them to get their heads around that because what they want is you just to do the process as it is. But it's like, no, I'm not following a broken, complicated process that makes my life harder and your life harder just because that's what you've always done. It's like not a good enough reason. Yeah. And so yeah. so I think that's the question, right? Like I think that's that's the... That's the question a manager can ask their employees. How am I making your life harder than it needs to be? How am I making it harder for you to achieve X? And the X is whatever the most important thing is, the priority work that, 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 that they need to get done, right? The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It was one thing. It was the priorest thing. And it stayed singular for 500 years. So it was only in the Industrial Revolution that somebody pluralized the term, oh, we have to have 50,000 priorities and they all have to be done now. It's like a kind of nonsense. But, but if you say, okay, how are we making the, you know, whatever the priority is, how are we making this priority harder than it needs to be for you? Uh, people, it's low-hanging fruit, man. People will tell you immediately, you know, they, they're incentivized to make it easier themselves. Nobody asks. Yeah. Well, we also know that companies have silos, data silos and human silos. And so even the concept of, of essentialism and focusing on what's truly essential is so difficult because nobody's working together to have the same answer of doing what matters most because they're all on their own paths. Do you find that to be true? So, okay, so first let's just give context. So effortless in a single word would be simplification and essentialism in a single word would be focus. And so together, the idea is you want to get the right things done, that's essentialism, but you want to do it in the right way, that's effortless. And, and, and generally, I think we overemphasize, oh, we have to figure out what the right thing is. That's like a clearer thought for us, but the right way matters just as much. Okay, so I wanted to give that context. Mm. Now, mm. here's a conundrum for you about silos. So. Apple is arguably the most focused company at scale in the world, right? Like, I mean, I could question that over the last few years, but, but they are extremely focused in their way of making decisions. So even now, right, as a $2 trillion company, they still have relatively simple number of products and 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 you know and, and they're designed in a in a in a kind of essentialist way right like I I don't think most people would argue with the basic premise I'm I'm offering there. How do they do it? Now they don't do it like what you'd think they do or people seem to think that people would do, which is oh no silos, no 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 structures. We just we're all going to work to solve the thing that needs to be solved. And it's kind of a little bit inherent in your question. Um, but that isn't what they do. It's, it's like this. It's, it's almost the opposite. With them, it's you cannot achieve anything at all at Apple. Nothing unless you collaborate with the other 
the, with the organization, with the functional responsibility for that thing. So you, so in most companies I've worked with, right, the, you know, the, the marketing group has their little IT group because they got tired of waiting for the IT group to do the thing they needed to do. And they're like, well, for the <laughs> sake of the customer, I will have my own little IT yes. group so I can make this happen. And, and, and vice versa, right? You'll have a marketing... In sales, the sales department will also have an IT group, but it will also have a little marketing group because they're tired of waiting for those people. And so what happens is, like, a little ironically, is, is that you, you just create these fiefdoms that can almost get stuff done on their own. And Apple solved it Of course, I'm not saying by creating silos, but something that's counterintuitive to people that are anti-silos is that they go, no, you can't, you have to trust the marketing group to do their job and they have to trust you to do your job, which is your product Mm -hmm. design or sales or whatever it is. And that keeping those lines so clean is part of the magic of how they have achieved real collaboration because you can't ignore each other. You have to go and have the conversation. And if someone isn't delivering what you need, you have to go and have the conversation because you will fail without their support. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a counterintuitive way to think about silos. It's like distinctive competency in those separate areas. Forces is a forcing function to have truthful dialogue uh, and, and to get clarity when there are issues between the groups. Ooh, that is powerful. Very well said. <laughs> and we could we could just have spoken an hour on silos as a topic. But as we're coming to the end here, I have two final questions. One, mm. sort of rapid fire, is mm. leadership. What is the best leadership advice, Greg, you've received in from a teacher, from a boss, from a customer? What stands out? Yeah, okay. So this is this is the my very newest, latest kind of understanding. And it's something like this. It's like, like most leaders don't even know the game they're in. And if you don't know the game you're in, right? Like you can play all day. Like if I play basketball and I don't know that the game of basketball is to put the ball you know, through the hoop. If I don't know that, then I can be busy, put in tremendous effort, incredible waste, right? But all the time kind of thinking I'm doing the right thing, maybe even creating metrics around it, my own scoreboard. I could still have huddles. I could still hire people. I could still get people of talent. But of course, I would be, I would be wasting so much effort. The, the, so many leaders are interested in getting tasks done. And, and sometimes, like even in essentialism, I have a question in there, which it's not like I don't like it, but I, I think, this, I think it, there's something beyond it. And so the question I pose to people is, okay, what's important now, right? Like that's how you win. What's important now? And that's what managers in the business of, even, even enlightened managers sometimes are in that same business. They're like, okay, well, what do we have to do? Okay, let's get that thing done. That isn't the game at all. A better way of framing the actual game that managers and leaders are in is who's important now. It is entirely about the relationships. It isn't, well, we've got tasks and we've got relationships. It is entirely about the relationships. And as soon as you shift that function, 
and figuring out, well, mm. who are the right people I should be working with? My, my, my sense is this, that, that life is not divided between 1x tasks and 2x tasks and 3x tasks, you know, like the level of importance. It's divided into 1x relationships, 10x relationships, 100x relationships, and 1,000x relationships. That there are some people so disproportionately important and leaders that suddenly wake up to the idea of like, well, who's important? Who is the customer? Who is the priority customer? <laughs> Who am I really trying to serve? Uh, that, 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 to me, that shift of understanding what the game itself is, 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 the, is the most profound thing I, I have learned about, about, about leadership. Mm. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. And mm -hmm. my final question for you is, what's that one takeaway you want people to remember from this conversation? Uh, okay, the one takeaway is something I haven't said, uh, but I will just end on this, what I have come to call the 10x dilemma, that every professional listening to this, every single one of them, by virtue of being here, have self-selected that this is a problem for them. And it's like this. You, you could sort of raise your virtual hands, right? R even though you're running along as you're listening to this or you know, you're, you're tidying up or you're in your car or commuting. Okay, put hand up. Who wants to achieve 10x results? That is quality relationships. That is better actual tangible results in your business outcomes, your customer service outcomes. Um, okay, customer experience. 10x, who wants it? Every hand, every single hand goes up. That's why they're here. They think that there's a way by learning from you and listening to your guests and talking about this that they can get to 10x. Now, now here's the second question. Who here by a show of hands, right? Who listening to this by a show of hands can work 10 times harder? <laughs> and the answer is none. There's not one person. I mean, maybe there is, but that's like a, that, that's an outlier and a different thing. Nobody can work 10 times harder that's listening to this conversation. And if you put those two questions together, you have the 10x dilemma. And so my position in all of the writing I've done, both in essentialism and in effortless, is that what got you here, you know, what got you to your current results won't get you there. Because if you just try to do 10 times more of what you've done before, you'll burn out before you get there. And so you have to shift mm -hmm. instead to well, what paradigms could be unlocked for me? What restricted paradigms from the past, limited views over... Yeah that have kept me back despite all this effort could be unlocked so that I could achieve 10x results and without burning out. That's my final thought for you. Mm. Well, thank you. And that certainly applies personally and professionally. And that's powerful. Well, thank you. Greg, so much for being here. And I will uh, have your books and your website and your podcast and all that where people can find you and learn more from you because there's a lot to learn. So thank you so much. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.